Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Paper View, where I review the newspapers and big headlines over the week, placing bets and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is a story that I meant to include in the previous episode about testing COVID-19. So I'm going to include it at the start of this one and then get into the episode proper. So this is in The Guardian. This is incredible, this. And it just proves what I've been saying all this time about testing for COVID-19. Tanzania's president shrugs off COVID-19 risk after sending fruit for tests. Tanzania's divisive president, John Magafuli, has said the economy is more important than the threat posed by coronavirus, adding that he wants to reopen the country for tourism despite warnings that Africa could face the next wave of the disease. The comments by Magafuli, who has modelled his populist response on that of Donald Trump and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, in repeatedly denying the risk of the pandemic to his country, come amid mounting alarm among Tanzania's neighbours over his approach. So far, there have been 21 officially recorded deaths in Tanzania. Makafuli made the remarks on Sunday during a mass in his hometown of Chateau, where he said he intended to keep Tanzania's borders open with its eight neighbours. The remarks follow a series of statements in recent weeks minimising the threat of coronavirus. In the video, the Tanzanian president once again touted natural remedies for coronavirus, saying these had helped his son. My own son, after contracting the virus, closed himself in his room, took a lemon and ginger solution before getting well and is even able to do push-ups, he said in a video that went viral appropriately. We have had a number of viral diseases, including AIDS and measles. Our economy must come first. It must not sleep. If we allow our economy to sleep, we will not receive salaries. Life must go on, he added. As I am talking here, he continued, some airline operators are fully booked until August with tourists who want to visit Tanzania. The president's latest comments follow several bizarre interventions, including his order that animals and fruit be tested for the virus as a demonstration of false positives. He has also been accused by health professionals of covering up the true number of infections. Elected in 2015 and nicknamed the bulldozer, he has become Tanzania's most high-profile leader since Julius Nyeri both for his popularity and also for his reputation of talking to those critical of him. Even as the US embassy is warned of the risk of exponential growth of COVID-19 cases in the country, adding that hospitals were overwhelmed, Magafuli has accused international health officials of exaggerating the crisis and suggested some health workers may have been put on the payroll of imperialists. While Tanzania has introduced some of the same social distancing measures as its neighbours, Magafuli's own preferred solution has been to encourage people to attend services in churches and mosques, insisting that prayers can vanquish this attack. Virus. While neighbouring countries, <laughs> countries have watched with mounting concern, the stunt by the former maths and chemistry teacher of sending samples from animals and fruit to the country's main testing laboratory to undermine testing credibility has been baffling. According to Magafuli, samples were secretly obtained by testers, including from a sheep, a goat and a pawpaw, which is a fruit by the way, given human names and sent to the country's national referral laboratory to test for coronavirus, which according to Magafuli came back positive. Calling for an investigation into the dirty game in the laboratory, he suggested that equipment or people may be compromised, hinting at sabotage in his speech broadcast on the state-run channel. What he did not address as he ordered the firing at the head of the lab was where the testing kits had come from or how accurate they are. I've always raised my suspicions about how our national lab has been conducting the COVID-19 cases, the president said in a speech. Like Trump, Magafuli is facing elections in the autumn and is no friend of his country's media. He is a follower of charismatic Nigerian preacher T.B. Joshua, who subscribed to magical thinking, predicting the virus would stop spreading on 27th of March. 
When that did not happen, he revised his prophecy to say that he meant that the virus would stop spreading from Wuhan on that date. Perhaps equally worrying is how Magafuli, again like Trump, has used the pandemic to further his own political ends, including calling for self-isolating opposition MPs not to be paid. The country has denied it has been weak in the face of the pandemic. The claims that Tanzania has been wavered and isolated itself in the fight against COVID-19 are not true because Tanzania has provided leadership in the economic bloc of the southern African countries which the country chairs and it has continued to do so with respect and all efforts required, said Foreign Affairs Minister Palam Agamba Kabudi. So he sent, I saw a video where he talks about this on YouTube. They sent samples from a fruit, the inside of the fruit. You might think, oh, someone's touched the outside and that's how they got it. No, the inside of the fruit, pawpaw and a jackfruit and tree bark. I think the tree bark came back inconclusive. The samples of the fruit came back positive. And it just shows how ludicrous the testing is. There is no test for COVID-19. None of the tests are actually detecting COVID-19. They're detecting a random unidentified sequence of genetic material, which most people have in their body anyway, and is not a problem for them. The source of which is unknown. The PCR test is testing for the genetic material. The nucleic acid test is doing the same. The antibody test is testing for antibodies. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but what I mean is not, it's not testing for the cause of antibodies. Antigens are what form antibodies, and antigens are defined as a toxin or other foreign substance which induces an immune response in the body, especially the production of antibodies. Now, we are, as I've talked about in episode 25, bombarded with toxins in society every day, and any one of them or a combination of them can create antibodies the test is not testing for the source it's just testing for the presence and there's the serology test which which is another word for the antibody test so when we're told antibodies prove that you've had the virus well they don't they just prove that some toxin or other substance has been taken into the body by whatever means that's all and people are testing positive for the virus they're self-isolating for 14 days or 10 days or whatever then they're testing positive again because they're testing positive for the same genetic material they had before and they've still got. They could test positive a third time, they'd test again after another 14 days. It's ludicrous, it's pathetic. There is no test for COVID-19. So-and-so has tested positive for COVID-19. No, they've not, because no, none of the tests are detecting COVID-19. And the next subject this week is something other than coronavirus for a change. It's been a while. It's one of the biggest stories. Black Lives Matter. This is in The Guardian. Now is the time. London's Black Lives Matter rally looks like a turning point. Well, it is. It could be a turning point, but not in the way this writer thinks. Anyway, the article says, It was always likely that the months of lockdown would demand some kind of emotional catharsis. You imagine it would involve the usual British excesses of lager and sunshine. In fact, in the past week, its primary expression has been a coming together of mostly young people in our cities under the banner of Black Lives Matter. In by far one of the largest demonstrations in London, many thousands crammed shoulder to shoulder in Parliament Square in the blustery rain and edged their way forwards towards St James's Park. On Friday, police and government ministers had warned that such a crowd was not only unlawful, but certainly dangerous with the virus still being transmitted from person to person, they say. In the midst of that crowd, an unnatural human feeling in itself, all those who have been in isolation, 
It was impossible not to feel that those warnings should have been heeded far more closely, but for the vast majority of those that came, the risk had seemed worth it. Some of the banners in Parliament Square made their arguments succinctly. Racism has always been a pandemic. As well as looking like the premature end of a shutdown spring in the capital, the protest also felt very much like the beginning of something, not a one-off outpouring of rage against the brutal killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis 12 days ago, but a sustainable expression of the need for change. Justice for George Floyd. I mean, the police officer who killed him has been charged with murder. What more can you do than that? There was an urgency about that demand, as well as a weariness. Innumerable wounds have been opened by the graphic video of Floyd's death, stretching back in British memories over generations. The protesters' banners were a roll call of past and current injustice. Actor John Boyega's heartfelt speech to the demonstrators on Wednesday made those links explicit. We are a physical representation of our support for George Floyd. We are a physical representation of our support for Stephen Lawrence. His words were carried on many of the cardboard signs held aloft. Now is the time. I ain't waiting. That sentiment, which is spread through cities across the world, was never likely to be postponed by demands for physical distancing. The loose network of Black Lives Matter activists who have coordinated last week's protests across the UK did their best to mitigate the risks in the crowd. I'll come to who's really coordinating Black Lives Matter in a minute, and it's not a loose network of activists. Far from it. They came equipped here with stops of free masks and sanitizer. In mine 8 and 29, one of those coordinators kicked off proceedings through a loud hailer, we are not here for violence. If you commit violence today, you are not for the cause. I don't want to see no alcohol. I don't want to see no weed. This is not a carnival. Keep your distance. You don't need me to say that. Coronavirus is killing black people. Not really, but still. For many hours, the hopes for a peaceful protest were realised, but in late afternoon, there were clashes between protesters and police, and one officer appeared to be knocked off their horse, which then bolted, sending crowds of people scattering. When I spoke to 8 and 29, she said they had expected... 20,000 to come. The eventual number appeared several times greater. What was not in doubt was that the protests had marked a new phase of momentum in a long campaign. I've always been involved, she said, of a movement that has its genesis in a protest against the decision not to prosecute the killer of Tra Trayvon Martin in 2013. To be honest, anyone who is black and passionate is involved, but it feels like a different moment. The death of George Floyd in a protest has inspired many more people to speak up, black, white, everyone. The difference we are seeing is people are no longer prepared to be ignorant. They want to educate themselves. Well, if only some of these protesters did educate themselves, because from what I can see, they've not. Well, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. A lot of the people I spoke to suggested that this was their first march. They acknowledged the risks of the crowd but thought they had no real choice. A young black woman from North London who didn't wish to give her name was holding a sign saying, Your silence is violence and sitting at the foot of Gandhi's statue. The facts have not changed, she said, but the difference is more people are listening. I see it on social media. Everyone that I know has been posting about this. And if you are young and you are not speaking up now, then it definitely says who you are. They don't have to be here physically because we are in the middle of a pandemic, but if they are not here mentally in the spirit, well, fuck them. Terence Niemi, 28, from Colchester, was also a first-time protester. I felt like I shouldn't be here. There was no real choice this time, but it shouldn't take losing another person's life for us to form together. Hopefully in future we can make these kind of movements without this situation going down. Da Vinci, a DJ from Brixton, said, Asking people to stop oppressing us doesn't really make much sense to me, but when you see people coming out together all around the world, hopefully we can unite around that and find something positive out of it. But Team Abdul Rahman had been on two previous protests last week. You only have to look at the images on the internet to know why people are enraged, she said. There was a lot of anger. People are not okay with how things are, and there was a lot of pain to process. She suggested the grimness of the last few weeks has also motivated that, motivated that change. 
Isolation itself has sharpened the issues. People have been at home, often alone for several months, hearing about black people dying, and a disproportionate number of them have been black people, and a disproportionate amount of black people have been suffering economically. That is another reason why we are here. The article continues, or concludes. The summer looks likely to pitch those demands for social justice squarely against public health. The first test of that clash was when marchers were invited to reassemble outside the U.S. Embassy in Vauxhall. Well, Black Lives Matter appears to be a grassroots organisation, and the -the on-the-street protesters give that impression, but it's funded by the elite less than 1%, not least George Soros, a frontman for the global cult, which I talk about in episode 59, part 2, this cult. It's funded by cult-owned corporations, Black Lives Matter, and it's expressing itself through mob rule and Mob rule means cult rule, the same cult which owns George Soros, who funds the mob. I've mentioned before a historical document called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which talks about mob rule and the progressives in its own way and says, it talks about creating a blind, mighty force, which will never be in a position to move in any direction without the guidance of our agents set at its head by us as leaders in the mob. The people will submit to this regime because it will know that upon these. And it talks about eventually demolishing the senseless forces, moved by instinct and not reason, by brutishness and not humaneness. These forces now triumph in manifestations of robbery and every kind of violence under the mask of principles of freedom and rights. They have overthrown all forms of social order to erect on the ruins the throne of the king of the Jews but their part will be played out the moment he enters into his kingdom. Then it will be necessary to sweep them away from his path. And just to pick up on the point about the king of the Jews, this is not describing a Jewish plot, and I'm not myself. This is pointing out a historical document, which has been incredibly prophetic, given that it was written, apparently, in the towards the end of the 1800s. And this is describing the very same agenda that I've been describing in my own way, from a more modern perspective, since pay-per-view began in 2018, and the same agenda that Dr. Richard Day, who I've mentioned before, I'm going to mention again later, was describing. Just different sources describing the same one agenda. It's nothing to do with a particular race. And this King of the Jews that's mentioned, I've talked about that before in episode 59, part 2, where I talk about the cult, is actually not to deal with any race very different to what it would seem to be and when you listen to episode 59 part 2.2 it makes perfect sense why that is anyway the reason i read that out is because of what it says about the mob which are acting exactly in the same way as is written in the protocols and we're looking at a marxist agenda but it's cultural marxism as instead of playing classes off against each other it's playing identity groups off against each other And these are the progressives, the mob, who were used to overthrow the existing order and establish a new order of control, a new structure of control, under the guise of government of the people. It's a revolution for the people, but then it never is, because the same controlling force that was controlled by the same cult before is controlled by it after. It's the same principle as Britain and America going into countries like Libya, under the guise of a humanitarian effort and installing a leader who is even more controlled by the same force that controls Britain and America as than the leader before. 
and that forces the same cult which is behind the agenda I'm talking about now. And that makes sense when you listen to episode 59, part 2. And the point about sweeping them away from this path, is it to quote the protocols, point is, these, the mob, are used to achieve what the cult wants, and then they are disposed of. They're subject to the same agenda as everyone else is. I mean, they are anyway, but they're used to advance the agenda, first of all. And it talks about the mob mentality, and it says... In order to elaborate satisfactory forms of action, it is necessary to have regard to the rascality, the slackness, the instability of the mob, its lack of capacity to understand and respect the conditions of its own life or its own welfare. It must be understood that the might of a mob is blind, senseless and unreasoning forever at the mercy of a suggestion from any side. And that those suggestions, the direction is led by people like Cyrus who were controlled by the cult. And it talks about It is indispensable to trouble in all countries the people's relations with their governments. This is the post-democratic society I talked about before. The technocracy planned. We've got an episode called Technocracy where I explain what that means. People talk about communism or capitalism or whatever, but it's a technocracy. That's what we're going into. And we've seen that with the pandemic, so-called pandemic, where talking heads and apparent philanthropists like Bill Gates are running global health policy and being cited as experts even though he's a software developer and a very very sinister person or people like elon musk the technocrats of silicon valley were seeing it unfold so the quote is it is indispensable to trouble in all countries people's relations with their government so as to utterly exhaust humanity with dissension hatred struggle envy and even by the use of torture by starvation, by the inoculation of diseases, vaccinations in other words, and the perception of a deadly disease, which is what we've seen with COVID-19, by want so that the population see no other issue than to take refuge in our complete sovereignty in money and in all else. But if we give the nations of the world a breathing space, the moment we long for is hardly likely ever to arrive. And that's what's happening now. We are being hit with all these reasons to fear and all these reasons to be stressed and depressed and to bring people to their knees appropriately black lives matter the mob want to defund the police and this comes from a classic lack of realization that in every group are nice people okay people and psychopathic people so not every policeman is a psychopath some are but not all of them and some policemen want to help people so it makes sense to have them around The mob also want to empty prisons, which means in America releasing 2.3 million prisoners as of 2016 figures. This just happens to be what one of their funders, George Soros, wants to do as well. This is an article on AmericanPriority.com. George Soros funded group to governors release as many prisoners as possible due to coronavirus. This is from April the 8th. George Soros funded group to governors, released as many persons as possible due to coronavirus. The Brennan Center for Justice, which is heavily financed by George Soros, has submitted a letter to the governors of all 50 states urging them to use executive action to release as many people as possible from incarceration due to coronavirus fears, provided they do not pose serious public safety threats. But they're in prison, so there's a chance they might, especially if all 50 states do it. And this is the, the madness of it all. The letter cited concern that the U.S. prison population could face greater risk of illness and death than the general public due to the Chinese coronavirus pandemic. 
the Brennan Centre recommended that all governors use the power of clemency where they can. Clemency meaning lenience. The document states, Ideally, people who are older, medically compromised, or nearing the end of their prison terms could have their sentences commuted, time served, and be released outright. We urge you to grant the broadest relief to the largest group of people possible, but should this prove impracticable, we urge you to consider clemency relief in other forms, such as reprieves, which temporarily suspend a sentence or conditional pardons. The Brenner Centre cited its own research to claim that extending clemency to especially vulnerable prisoners will not jeopardise public safety. How? It claimed, our own research has shown that the state prison sentences are often too long to begin with and that roughly 14% of imprisoned people have served sufficiently long prison terms that could likely be released within the next year with little risk to public safety. Moreover, researchers have shown time and time again that the likelihood of recidivism, which is the likelihood to reoffend, plummets as people age. One seminal study by the US Sentencing Commission found that offenders over 16 years old at the time of release had a recidivism rate of 16% roughly a quarter of the rate of people released before age 21. Clemency and relief, the article continues, in other forms should also be considered, Brennan advocated, suggesting the use of conditional pardons or reprieves to temporarily suspend a prison sentence. For convicts who cannot be outright granted clemency, the Brennan Centre urged governors to use their unique executive powers to further shrink the prison population as much as possible at this critical time. One proposal was to expand the criteria for sentence reductions with merit, time, or granting additional credits beyond the currently used good time reductions. Another recommendation was for delayed sentencing for those who have been convicted but have not yet been put in prison. The Brennan Centre for Justice, located at NYU School of Law, is heavily financed by Soros' Open Society Foundations and is the recipient of numerous Open Society grants. While the Brennan Centre's recommendations for clemency and sentence reduction are expansive, the progressive group is not alone in advocating for such reprieve. Advocates, criminal attorneys and family members of those incarcerated have urged a harder hit stage to release older prisoners and those who are at higher risk of coronavirus complications due to underlying health conditions. California already began fast-tracking the release of about 3,500 inmates serving sentences for non-violent crimes and who are also due to be paroled within two months. The New York Post reported thousands of state and federal inmates are using coronavirus fears to push for early release with their attorneys citing underlying health conditions. Everyone from killers, drug traffickers and gang members to mobsters, fraudsters and accused rapists are making a bid to get out of the clink, the New York Post reported. U.S. Attorney General William Barr expedited a directive to release certain inmates to home confinement if they are at high risk for coronavirus, with a focus on federal inmates in Connecticut, Louisiana and Ohio. Eligibility under Barr's directive will be determined by age, vulnerability to coronavirus, prison conduct, whether they have a re-entry plan and whether the inmates will be a danger to their communities. We are experiencing significant levels of in- Infection at several of our facilities, Barr stated, we have to move with dispatching using home confinement when appropriate to move vulnerable inmates out of these institutions. Some offences, such as sex offenders, will render an inmate ineligible for home detention, the directive added. Other serious offences would weigh more heavily against consideration for home detention. In a second memo, Barr encouraged prosecutors to consider coronavirus risks when weighing bail and whether to send a defendant to jail while awaiting trial. You should now consider the medical risks associated with individuals being remanded into federal custody during the COVID-19 pandemic by a written memo which was obtained by Politico. Even with the extensive precautions we are currently taking, each time a new person is added to a jail, it presents at least some risk to the personnel who operate that facility and to the people incarcerated therein. Barr's bail memo reportedly made clear that defendants who pose a public threat must be detained. Controlling weight should be given to public safety and under no circumstances should those who present a risk to any person or community be released. Barr wrote, 
COVID-19 presents real risk, but so does allowing violent gang members and child predators to roam free. The mob also wants to break up the traditional family unit. And this just happens to be a goal of the cult, which I've talked about several times before, because the, these young people and these progressives are the foot soldiers for the establishment while believing themselves to be anti-establishment. Dr. Richard Day, who I've mentioned before, an executive of a eugenics organization called Planned Parenthood, created by the Rockefellers, one of the elite family bloodlines, less than 1%, on behalf of the cult. Bill Gates' father, William H. Gates, was also a Planned Parenthood executive. Depopulation is a cult gender goal, as I've said many times before, and that's why Bill Gates is so central to the COVID-19 alleged pandemic, because he's a cult frontman, as I've talked about before. Feminism is a movement supported by the progressives, funded by George Soros, and is also related to abortion and Planned Parenthood. Bill Gates is obsessed with population control and has said publicly before now that vaccines may be an answer to the overpopulation problem, as he describes it. Gates is suggesting an RNA vaccine which will genetically mutate the human form, as I explained in a previous episode. I've also talked about the plan to create and genetically engineer a new synthetic human form in episode 52 and other episodes which connects into the technological agenda being driven largely out of Silicon Valley, which is owned by military intelligence, which is owned by the cult, and where is Microsoft, Bill Gates' Microsoft, located? Silicon Valley. Apparently now it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And whenever I see the word anti in front of anything, it usually involves hate, anger, and in some cases, violence. We don't need to be anti-anything. I'm not anti-cult. I think it's important to expose what they're doing and how they do it and what they plan for humanity and the world but i don't have any animosity towards them i don't hate them i don't have any anger towards them my perception is we don't need to fight the system or the cult pointless anyway they've got the high-tech weaponry and the military on their side we just need to withdraw our cooperation with their agenda and dr richard day said about the family unit he talked about abortion and population control but he said about families, families will be limited in size. And he said this about family. And he said this about family. Families will be limited in size. He said this in 1969, by the way. Divorce will be made easier and more prevalent. Most people who marry will marry more than once. More people will not marry. And Dr. Richard Day talked about population control. And he gave a speech to a meeting of pediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1969 and told them, for whatever reason, not to take any notes or record anything because he was going to tell them how the world was going to change. And when you look at what he said, even down to fine detail, it's incredible how prophetic it was and accurate it was. And one doctor, Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, did take notes that in that meeting. And before he died, he did a series of interviews about what they said in that meeting. And it's stunning how accurate it was, as I said. And I'll place a link to the website where... You can read what he said, as quoted by Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan. I believe the audio of Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan is available on YouTube, but if not, then you can read what he said anyway. There's a website called New Order of Barbarians, which has the entire transcript. In terms of defunding police and letting prisoners out, this is what Dr. Richard Day said on that subject. Drug use would be increased. Alcohol use would be increased. Law enforcement efforts against drugs would be increased. On first hearing that, it sounded like a contradiction. Why increase drug abuse and simultaneously increase law enforcement against drug abuse? But the idea is that, in part, the increased availability of drugs will provide a sort of law of the jungle whereby the weak and the unfit will be selected out 
There was a statement made at the time. Before the earth was ever populated, there was a law of the jungle where only the fittest survived. You had to be able to protect yourself against the elements and wild animals and disease. And if you were fit, you survived. But now we've become so civilized, we've over-civilized, and the unfit are unable to survive only at the expense of those who are more fit. That's basically classic eugenics, which is very appropriate. The quote continues, And the abuse of drugs then would restore in a certain sense the law of the jungle and selection of the fittest for survival. News about drug abuse and law enforcement efforts would tend to keep drugs in the public consciousness and would also tend to reduce this unwarranted American complacency that the world is a safe place and a nice place. Another element to this whole situation is now, and it's going on for a while actually, but you've really seen it come to the fore with the Black Lives Matter situation. White people are being encouraged to confess and apologise for their white privilege. Does that include white people on the streets in America and around the world? What about the privilege of Asian grooming? raping gangs who are allowed to abuse white women and white girls and get away with it because they're not white. What about black only or coloured only events excluding white people under the guise of inclusivity when it's really exclusivity? When if those events were white only there would quite rightly be absolute outrage. This again plays into the victim mentality. If black people or even white people think black people are not treated fairly then it's up to black people to do something about that. What's the point in encouraging white kids and white people to aspire to achieve in life? When they do, they're going to be made to apologise for it and feel guilty about it. What about black privileged people like Jay-Z and Obama? Their privilege is okay, they're fine, they don't have to apologise for that. Also, white people are told to apologise for the absence of their ancestors. I wouldn't apologise for what white ancestors did. Why? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. No one who's alive today did it. White people being ordered to get on their knees and apologise and confess their white privilege. What is that reminiscent of? A slave owner. A slave owner demanding acquiescence and obedience from the slave. Slaves can manifest through any colour, creed, culture or background. For those who think it is about race, would this have happened if a black policeman was kneeling on the face of a white guy? White privilege? And that's not what I'd call that scenario. And on that subject, here's a great article in Spiked magazine, 3rd of June, by Brendan O'Neill. I did not kill George Floyd. The attempt to hold all whites responsible for the death of Floyd shows what a dead-end work politics is. There's a new sin. Forget gluttony, forget sloth. The great moral error today is whiteness. To be white is to be fallen. Whiteness has become a kind of original sin, an inherited moral defect one must atone for throughout one's life. In the wake of the brutal execution of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis, this almost religious treatment of whiteness as an existential flaw has gone over mainstream. The Archbishop of Canterbury yesterday called on white Christians to repent of our own prejudices. Repent, ye sinners. Or if you prefer your leaders to be secular, how about the high priestess and middle class decency, Nigella Lawson, who instructs her fellow white people to acknowledge that systematic racism exists and that we are complicit in it. That brutal killing in Minneapolis is your doing, white people. Or read Time magazine, the most mainstream magazine in existence. White people, says one of its contributors, have inherited this house of white supremacy, built by their forebears and willed to them. Inherited, the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the son. The Time writer says white racism is a spectrum, stretching from those white people who tell a black woman how pretty our hair looks when we wear it straight to the more extreme end of the spectrum. Cops literally suffocating black people like George Floyd as they beg for their lives.
To compare a compliment about a woman's hair to the merciless killing of Floyd is deeply disturbing. It sanitizes the crime committed against Floyd and debases his suffering by putting it on a par with a more uninvited compliment. It also confirms how thoroughly whiteness has been pathologized in mainstream ideology. What was once said about black men, that it is problematic when they compliment women, women of another race, and that their racial makeup drives them towards murderous behavior is now said about white men. Perhaps someone can explain how replacing one form of racial fatalism with another is progressive. Whiteness as sin is everywhere. White America, if you want to know who's responsible for racism, look in the mirror, cries the Chicago Tribune. White people, you are the problem, it continues, in case you didn't get its message that this sinful race, these fallen people, are the scourge of our time. I'm talking about white people, said James Corden in his monologue on the Late Late Show on Monday. This is our problem to solve, he said of the murder of Floyd and the problem of racism. White people, all of you, you did this. This is how mainstream the pathologization of whiteness has become. It is now beamed into suburban living rooms across the US by famously inoffensive TV hosts. A white man telling white people about the sins of white complicity. This is, at the very least, an extremely odd state of affairs. Let's be clear about what is happening here. This is an effort to establish racial collective guilt for the murder or suffocation of George Floyd. There are two problems with this approach. The first is that collective guilt on the basis of racial origin is always a wicked ideology to pursue. Whether it's Jews being held collectively guilty of the alleged excesses of rich Jews or blacks being collectively punished for the offences of individual black people, such racial extrapolation always leads to prejudice and suffering. There is a twisted irony in the fact that so many commentators and activists who pose as anti-racist are promoting the ideology of collective racial guilt in response to the killing of George Floyd. The second problem with this sweeping anti-white reaction to Floyd's death and with the pathologization of whiteness more broadly is that it acts as a distraction from the real problems facing the US and other societies. Collectivizing the crime committed by four police officers in Minneapolis turns attention away from the specificity of police brutality and of structural disarray in modern America in favor of pursuing a blanket suspicion of all whites. The problem is dissipated, then obscured. We are implicitly discouraged from seriously analyzing specific residual political problems in the United States in favor of joining in the thrill-inducing project of bashing on whites. It is important to understand where this distracting moral project comes from. It is an outlook of the privileged elites, very few, often white elites. It comes from academia, from the media class, from the younger members of the political establishment. For years now, these privileged elites have promoted hostility to whiteness. They have projected the sins of the past onto whites living today, claiming that white people are the beneficiaries of slavery and colonialism. They have pushed the ideology of white complicity, that is, all whites bear responsibility for racial crimes, and white fragility, that is, any white who pushes back against this idea of collective racial guilt is showing his moral weakness. They have encouraged the check-in of one's white privilege, which is really a modern form of penance. Anyone who thought the cranky woke idea of privilege check-in was confined to PC campuses will have had a rude awakening over the past few days. We've had the Archbishop of Canterbury promoting a Christian version of white self-correction, and anyone who has seen the incredibly creepy videos showing groups of white people begging black people for forgiveness for the historic crimes and racism or chanting in a massive crowd about how they will do better in future will know that privilege check-in has become the new religion. Original sin, repentance, public self-flagellation, it has it all. Anti-whiteness comes from the top. It is most pronounced among privileged whites. It is nothing in common with the noble struggles for racial equality in the past. Rather, it expresses the nihilism and fatalism of the contemporary liberal elites and intellectual classes. Allegedly liberal, actually the opposite. It is self-loathing disguised as radicalism. It is not the friend by any stretch of the imagination of black people or white people. On the contrary, it condemns both to an interminable status quo in which the former must perform the role of perennial victim and the latter must engage in penitence publicly and noisily forever. 
leap fatalism sees no way out of inequality or injustice precisely because it has reimagined these things as traits, as the Chicago Tribune puts it, of racial behaviour. All it can envisage is a technocratic system of racial management in which black victims are encouraged to speak and weep and whites are encouraged to listen and repent like a forever truth and reconciliation commission. Technocracy, that's where we're going, I've said before. It is striking that where past black campaigns for racial equality spoke in terms of visions, dreams, better futures in which things will be different, today's self-styled correctors of white privilege can only obsess over the past. History is their stomping ground. Slavery and colonialism are their obsessions. A writer for Slate says these things are America's original sin and George Floyd's murder shows that they infect us still. This sums up the fatalism of the new racial guardians. In describing racism as America's original sin, they utterly demean the agency of the black people and white people who fought for rights and equality over the centuries and who tangibly changed America for the better. Worse, they lock America into racial permanence, into round after round of racial accusation and racial repentance, into an ever-ending self-whipping up for the inherited sins of the past. It is an entirely dispiriting ideology that offers nothing whatsoever to blacks and whites fighting for freer, better futures. This is why corporate America and the new political elites have no problem at all with the woke ideology of pathologized whiteness. In fact, they embrace it. In recent days, some of the most powerful corporations in the US have commented on the problem of white supremacy. And, it might be added, some of the most powerful corporations are funding Black Lives Matter, along with George Soros. The article continues, Leaders and officials in Minneapolis and elsewhere initially refused to condemn rioting on the basis that, as white people, it wasn't their place to do so. The academia-born new racialism could be easily internalised by the capitalist and political elites because it poses no threat whatsoever to their influence over society. On the contrary, in dissipating the problems of racism and social inequality and personalising these things and reducing them to traits that exist across the whole of society, the woke ideology takes the heat off the powers that be and even creates a space for them to perform their penitence and advertise their awareness and in the process become part of the saved people. It empowers them. Yeah, but it could be added that the young people who support Black Lives Matter are being played by the power elite. This is the great tragedy in the US right now. People are on the streets marching and arguing for some kind of change, but the dominant political ideology and language of our time utterly fails to meet their expectations or even to allow that meaningful change is possible. In accepting today's ruling class ideology, the ideology of wokeness and of forever racialism, the leaders of these protesters have defeated themselves already. They have embraced an ideology that makes solidarity virtually impossible by constantly flagging the differential traits between blacks and whites and which elevates backwards looking historic repentance over moving towards a better wealthier future. George Floyd's death has exposed how dominant, destructive and futile the work worldview has become. Rejecting the new racialism, spurning the work creed, turning one's back on elite fatalism that today comes in the garb of caring about black people. These are the preconditions for proper solidarity and real change. Absolutely. That's a brilliant article there by Brendan O'Neill. As far as how to really deal with racism and help black people. People are being encouraged to donate to tackle racism when people are losing businesses and independent livelihoods as a result of the lockdowns. Black people are even having businesses trashed by thugs and looters because it's not about race for those people. It's about rioting, looting, grotesquely exploiting the death of George Floyd. Why are Black Lives Matter and its advocates not focusing on black lives murdered by black police if it's really about race? And on that subject, I came across this historical record, which is described by this article on thoughtco.com called African Slave Traders. You don't hear much about this, interestingly, but here we are. During the era of the transatlantic slave trade, Europeans did not have the power to invade African states or kidnap African slaves at will. 
Because of this, between 15 and 20 million slaves were transported across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa and purchased from slave traders throughout Europe and European colonies. There are still many questions people have about the triangular trade of slaves and goods during this time, such as the motivations of those in support of slavery and how slavery was woven into life. Here are some of the answers explained. One thing that many Westerners wonder about African slavers is why they were willing to sell their own people. Why would they sell Africans to Europeans? The simple answer to this question is that they did not see slaves as their own people. Blackness as an identity or marker of difference was at that time a preoccupation of Europeans, not Africans. There was also in this era no collective sense of being African. In other words, African slave traders felt no obligation to protect African slaves because they did not regard them as their equals. And that's a very good point because you cannot apply the morals of today to distant past. Attitudes change. Society becomes more civilized, at least to an extent. And so the distant past has to be viewed as the distant past. And if you erase record of it, there's every chance that could happen again because there's no learning from what happened before. The article continues. So how do people become slaves? Some slaves or prisoners, often many of these may have been seen as enemies or rivals to those who sold them. Others were people who had fallen into debt. Slaves were different by virtue of their social and economic status what we might think of today as their class. Slavers also kidnapped people, but again, there was no reason in their minds that made them see slaves as their own. Another reason that African slavers, slave owners, basically, were so willing to sell our fellow Africans was that they felt they had no other option. As the slave trade intensified in the 1600s and 1700s, it became harder not to participate in the practice in some regions of West Africa. The enormous demand for African slaves led to the formation of a few African states whose economy and politics were centered around slave raiding and trading. States and political factions that participated in the trade gained access to firearms and luxury goods that could be used to secure political support. States and communities not actively participating in the slave trade were increasingly at a disadvantage. The Mosai Kingdom is an example of a state that has resisted the slave trade until the 1800s. The Mosai Kingdom was not the only African state or community to resist selling slaves to Europeans. The King of the Congo, with a K, Afonso I, who had converted to Catholicism, tried to stop the sale of slaves to Portuguese traders. He lacked the power, however, to police the whole of his territory and traders as well as nobles engaged in the transatlantic slave trade to gain wealth and power. Alfonso tried writing to the Portuguese king asking him to stop Portuguese traders from engaging in the practice, but his plea was ignored. The Benin Empire offers a very different Example, Benin sold slaves to Europeans when it was expanding and fighting many wars which produced prisoners of war. Once the state stabilized, it stopped trading slaves until it started to decline in the 1700s. During this period of increasing instability, the state resumed participation in the slave trade. It might be tempting to assume that African slave traders did not know how bad European plantation slavery was, but they were not naive. Not all traders would have known about the horrors of the Middle Passage or of what lives lives awaited slaves, but others at least had an idea. They simply didn't care. There were always going to be people willing to ruthlessly exploit others in the quest for money and power, but the story of the African slave trade is much further than a few bad people. Slavery and the sale of slaves were part of life. The concept of not selling slaves to willing buyers would have seemed strange to many people up until the 1800s. The goal was not to protect slaves, but to ensure that you and your family were not reduced to slaves. And why would African sell African slaves? Well, one reason given in this article is that they didn't see them as African slaves, but also because the mentality that would want to be a slave owner can manifest through any colour any creed, any culture, any background. It's the mentality that's the, the issue is not the colour. But the woke mentality doesn't realise that. In fact, there's a new feature of the alleged COVID-19 virus has been discovered. Yeah, it's been described as the first woke virus. 
because they only attach you if you break social distancing rules or protest against lockdown. If you protest for Black Lives Matter, you're left alone. People who condemn people for breaking lockdown and social distancing rules and protesting against lockdown are now praising those protesting for Black Lives Matter, including Piers Morgan, by the way, whose son was part of the protests, when he's been naming and shaming people on live TV and ridiculing the people on social media for breaking lockdown rules the rest of the time. We're looking at a psyop, a psychological game to turn us into unthinking and questioning, acquiescent, compliant robots who respond in whatever way the government tells them to respond. And we're seeing this unfold with the way people are acquiescing to COVID-19 guidelines and laws without any questioning whatsoever. I've talked in episodes 5 and 10 about how education and the school system is about churning out young people who have bought the official narrative of everything and will continue to do so throughout their lives. And they're also programmed behaviour-wise and from perception comes behaviour. And in terms of woke, that is being generated through many years of programming through schools and colleges and universities. Principal Ellen Dunn in Darien High School, for example, in Connecticut, sent an email to parents promising to encourage race-conscious SPLC reading material. And there are lesson plans which were drawn up very quickly after the George Floyd incident. It's happening here in Britain as well. I know of one mother who actually emailed the head teacher of her son's school in disgust at what her son was being asked to do for homework. One part of the homework was to write about why the current situation makes you feel angry. There's also this bollocks about it's not enough to be non-racist, we must be anti-racist. Whatever that's supposed to mean anyway. And whenever anything has anti in front of it, it sometimes means violence, but it usually means anger protesting and censorship young people protesting and who and who have adopted the progressive mindset the woke mentality have been programmed through the education system to perceive in that way and now we're seeing the effect of it and the programming is ongoing and that's what these lesson plans are about the education system has long been about programming now it's just becoming more obvious in recent years the splc is the southern poverty law center and they're an elite Zionist organization operating on behalf of Israel for the cult controlling Israel, which I talk about in episode 59, part 2, and the same cult which controls the world. It's funded by Intel, an Israeli company in part, and a cult-controlled company which sells the Intel chip, which, as I detail in episode 59, part 2, point 2, can be used for hacking into virtually any computer system in the world. The same cult was ultimately, and yet the West goes on about Russian alleged hacking. The same cult was ultimately behind Black Lives Matter in terms of ultimate ownership of those funding Black Lives Matter and the SPLC exist as part of a vast global network of elite Zionist organisations controlled ultimately by the cult to target anyone or anything challenging the actions of the government and the racist apartheid psychopathic state of Israel and to dub anyone saying that and much more detailed information exposing the Zionist network globally and the cult which controls it as anti-Semitic to shut them up or discredit them. I talk more about this in episode 10. So why would an apologist for genocide, which is what these organisations are, care about what high school children think about black people? They don't give a shit. They're protecting a racist apartheid state to start with. So there's another agenda. And when you look at the cult funding of Black Lives Matter and the goals of Black Lives Matter and how that mirrors the protocols, then you can start to see why an organisation like SPLC would be interested. The principal and the teachers in the school will be clueless about all of this because they don't have any other information apart from the official explanation with which to perceive the situation from another perspective and this is the whole point of pay-per-view and the new updated pay-per-view book print version coming out early august which includes an added appendix all about covid19 by the way which is to say to people look 
there's another way to look at these official narratives we're given and here's the information to back it up. But if you don't have that information, that perception, you can only take on face value what you've been told, which is exactly what's happened with this high school. And for that matter, in the way society has adopted supporting Black Lives Matter. The irony behind people, especially young people, pulling down statues because of the historical figures links to slavery is that, as I explained in episode 66, everyone is already enslaved because slavery takes many forms, not just a ball and chains or working on a plantation. The protocols and the agenda of the cult is not a Jewish plot to enslave the world. It's a plot to enslave everyone in the world, including Jewish people, by a cult which has no affiliation to any racial nationality and wants to enslave them all equally. The ultimate form of slavery is slavery of the mind and control of perception. And from information received comes perception, comes action or inaction. And that brings me on to the next subject. YouTube and censorship. This is by Peter Hitchens, who's, who writes some very good articles for the Daily Mail. And in this one, he's writing about social media censorship. And this is what he says. Did YouTube use its shadow balance to censor my views? I was censored, but in a thoroughly modern way. I did not even know it had happened until I was alerted by others. I still do not know for certain who was responsible. Those who wanted to hear what I had to say did not even know they were being stopped from doing so. It took place, as so much now does, on the internet. I gave an interview about the virus first to two clever young men, Constantine Kissin and Francis Foster. Calling themselves trigonometry, they successfully present frequent programs on the supposedly open to all YouTube platform. This is now owned by the left-wing internet giant Google and, like almost all such outfits, is based in California, Silicon Valley. I said what I have been saying here for months, that the crashing of the economy and the stifling of personal liberty were utterly out of proportion to the danger from COVID-19, which, as I would say, and I've been saying for weeks now, actually does not exist. Anyway, the article continues. I pointed out they were damaging to public health and to the future of our society. I gave evidence from my view and quote, quoted eminent experts. I do not think I said anything that was false or abusive. But within a couple of hours of launching the interview, which you may watch here, he provides a link to the interview, I'll include it in the description of the episode. Constantine and Francis noticed a very strange thing. It was almost impossible to find, even if you knew where to look. They went public with the problem and immediately found that plenty of other people were having the same difficulty. The interview just didn't come up, even if you searched quite hard. I am pretty sure, but cannot prove, that I was the victim of something called shadow banning, which is as sinister as it sounds. Someone had fiddled with the computer codes called algorithms which guide the searches everyone makes on the World Wide Web. A number of people, including Toby Young and The Spectator and the LBC presenter Ian Dale, joined a public protest against this. Also on my side was Freddie Sayers of the website Unheard, with Heard spelled H-E-R-D. A few days before, he had been brutally informed by YouTube that they were removing an excellent interview he conducted with Professor Carol Sakura, the distinguished cancer expert. Professor Sakura had said, When the history books are written, the fear would have done much more damage than the virus, including large numbers of cancer and cardiological patients not being treated and dying unnecessarily. This is no doubt controversial, but Professor Sakura is more entitled to say it than most. Unheard received a message, beginning cheerily, Hi, Unheard, from a nameless spokesman for something called YouTube Team. In some electronic kangaroo court they had decided the Sakura interview would violate their guidelines they did not say why or how they explained in their message that they did not allow content which promotes violent or dangerous acts professor Sakura didn't do that they also warned against material which was shocking disrespectful or sensational which it also was not I have looked at those guidelines and can see nothing which justifies this action, but YouTube almost immediately threw out Unheard's appeal against this blatant censoring. Unheard has some powerful friends and made a big fuss. YouTube eventually gave way, admitted it had made a mistake and put the interview back. It was all a bit embarrassing. 
you can see why they might not want to do that again. But then within days, I too was being censored, but in a different way. In both cases, the subject that caused the trouble was criticism of the virus panic. My readers here at the Mail on Sunday, readers of my Mail online blog, and those who follow me is at Clark Micah on Twitter. Clark with an E. M-I-C-A-H. Now I've been making this case with facts and logic for months, but millions are unaware there is any dissent from this policy. Does someone want to keep them ignorant? I've had no traceable response from YouTube to my complaints apart from what looked like an automated reply. But again, after a considerable fuss, they sort of backed down. The interview was now reasonably easy to find. But what about people who don't have my contacts, allies or clout? Their stuff can be taken down or shadow banned in silence. I remember nearly 30 years ago the extraordinary day when the mighty Soviet Communist Party newspaper Pravda revealed it had for many years had an official censor in its office cutting out anything that might upset the Kremlin. It was no surprise, but it was so blatant that the revelation still had the power to disgust me. Soon afterwards, this shady figure retired, we thought forever. But it seems the censors have come back, and I am not at all comforted that these days they wear sweatshirts and baseball caps and say hi before wielding their blue pencils and banishing dissent to the unheard shadows. That's a good point. These people like Zuckerberg, the t-shirt wearing friendly guy apparently, is fronting up a disgusting organisation. Well, I've talked about the censorship of Silicon Valley in episode 25. Silicon Valley has the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. YouTube's community guidelines are censorship guidelines and they're vaguely worded and open to interpretation that even says in the terms and conditions that they can basically censor without any necessary explanation which is what they do shadow banning is censoring without even informing the person who's been censored it's a cowardly way to censor people generating the big numbers are those youtube and social media giants most fear because they can communicate alternative credible information and perspectives to a wide audience and that's why they're targeted the most not only with censorship but also character assassination it does tell you something though it tells you that the cult are not all powerful and they're censoring because they control everything they don't yet they're censoring because they have to censor because the official narratives they expand not least covid19 can be taken apart with alternative information quite easily so with COVID-19. So they need to stop people seeing and hearing the alternative information, or they can't justify the changes in society on the back of the official narratives. It also tells you that the power lies with us, the target population, not them, because otherwise they wouldn't have to go to such lengths to censor alternative information posted and shared by the target population. The answer, as ever, is information communication, and then acting upon that information coming together irrespective of labels or divisions and refusing to cooperate with their own enslavement. This is why they're trying to divide people. We saw it with Brexit. Oh, them old people, they ruined our future voting to leave the European Union when there was actually a lot of young people that voted for Brexit as well, by the way. Old people are ruining the planet through climate change, dividing people through social distancing and masks and other ways, putting people under house arrest with COVID-19 and now dividing people over race with black lives matter and class as i said earlier people realize that these labels that they apply to themselves identity labels are just used to divide and rule when we come together irrespective of those labels then it's game over for the cult and their agenda and the next subject this week is lockdown this is in the telegraph Professor Lockdown, Neil Ferguson, admits Sweden used the same science as UK. This is the guy who ludicrous computer models, which he admitted were nowhere near reality himself, led to lockdown in Britain. 
and I've talked about Ferguson in episode 72, and I've mentioned him in the last episode as well. This is the article. Professor Lockdown Neil Ferguson admits Sweden used the same science as UK. The scientist behind lockdown in the UK has admitted that Sweden has achieved roughly the same suppression of coronavirus without draconian restrictions. Neil Ferguson, who became known as Professor Lockdown after convincing Boris Johnson to radically curtail everyday freedoms, acknowledged that despite relying on quite similar science, the Swedish authorities have gone a long way to the same effect without a full lockdown. Sweden has adopted a far softer approach to COVID-19 than elsewhere in Europe, introducing voluntary social distancing measures and keeping restaurants and bars and many schools open. As of the end of May, it had recorded 4,350 deaths from COVID-19. By contrast, as of Monday, there had been at least 39,045 in England. Say, there's more to know about figures, but as I'll get to in a minute, but even so, officially, that's the figures at that time. Financial data released in May also suggested Sweden had so far avoided a heavy blow to its economy by shunning a lockdown, its GDP contracting just 0.3% in the first three months of the year, compared to 3.8% across the Eurozone. The UK economy contracted 2%, the sharpest drop since the height of the financial crisis. We've seen nothing yet, I would say. The article continues. Professor Ferguson resigned from the main scientific advisory group for emergencies, SAGE, committee last month after the Telegraph revealed that he broke social distancing rules to meet his married lover. However, a witness at the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee revealed that he is still helping shape policy, leading a team contributing to one of the most influential SAGE subcommittees. Mm. When you look at what I said in the last episode and what I say in episode 72, where I reveal his connection to Bill Gates and other salient facts, shall we say, about his past, the idea, even after the ludicrous computer models which led to lockdown, that he's still advising on policy is insane. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Every time Neil Ferguson has advised on policy, it has been catastrophic. So the fact that he is still advising on policy is insane. But he gives those behind the virus hoax the claims and the evidence they want. The article continues giving evidence to the same Lords, not least Bill Gates. Giving evidence to the same Lords Committee on Tuesday, Professor Ferguson said he had the greatest respect for Swedish scientists. They came to a different policy conclusion, but based really on quite similar science. He added, I don't agree with it, but scientifically they're not that far from scientists in any part of the world. Sweden's rate of virus reproduction, the article continues, the so-called R-value is thought to be at one, meaning that on average every case will cause one other infection. In the UK, it is thought to be between 0.75 and 1, meaning the virus outbreak should be retreating. But again, that's based on the figures, which I massively challenge. While pointing out that Sweden's mortality rate is not declining in a similar way to that of other European countries, Professor Ferguson said, Nevertheless, it is interesting that adopting a policy which is short of a full lockdown, they have closed secondary schools and universities and there is a significant amount of social distancing, but it's not a full lockdown. They have got quite a long way to the same effect. That is something we are looking at very closely. The UK's high death toll is due in part to the fact that COVID-19 entered the country earlier than predicted and from unexpected sources, Professor Ferguson told the committee. The modelling expert said that genetic analysis has revealed that most transmissions in the UK originated in Spain and Italy. We had been worrying about the 
import of infections from China, other Asian countries, maybe the US, he said. But it's clear that before we were even in a position to measure it, before surveillance systems were set up, there were many hundreds, if not thousands, of infected individuals coming into the country in late February and early March from Spain and Italy. That meant that the epidemic was further ahead than we anticipated. It explains some of the acceleration in policy then, but it also explains to some extent why mortality figures ended up being higher than we had hoped. He said the UK was much more heavily affected than modelers anticipated, adding, that's one of the reasons we have, if not the largest, one of the largest epidemics in Europe. Get to what's caused the epidemic in a minute. Lockdown is a blunt instrument and, when possible, the article says, should be replaced with more precise measures that cause less economic damage, the epidemiologist said. Professor Ferguson's comments to the committee can be taken as support for the reimposition of controls in the event of future flare-ups, a prospect raised by ministers. The second wave. People are saying, is there going to be a second wave? I don't know. Of course there's going to be a second wave. Because if you imagine if this virus, even officially that it exists, if it went away now, and then a few months hence, they bring in the vaccine. When it's gone, who's going to have the vaccine? And how are they going to push forward the other elements of their agenda, which they have planned on the back of this? If there's no virus, if it's gone, of course there's going to be a second wave. And the second wave was planned before the first wave. Because these things are not made up spontaneously, they're long planned. And because of the precedent being set for lockdown and for draconian measures, when the second wave hits in the autumn time going into the winter, then they'll go straight into lockdown and straight into draconian measures. There won't need to be an incremental move. There won't need to be any kind of debate on it. It'll just go straight into lockdown. Because the precedent's been set with the first wave, the article continues. Ferguson's modelling, Ferguson's modelling, had forecast a 75% drop in con tax, whereas officials believe 85% has been achieved. He revealed that the issue of lockdown fatigue was not something his team had taken into account. I think the issue of fatigue was not something we ever modelled. Some people had that view on stage, but it was not one I shared or other modellers looked at, he told the committee. Lockdown fatigue basically being the effect of lockdown. I think the difference in adherence, Ferguson says, was that we assumed, for instance, there would be a 75% drop in contacts outside the home. It turned out to be more like an 85% drop. So we're talking about differences, but not differences, which make a qualitative change to what you predict policy to do. The transmission rate of the virus should stay relatively flat, but he says, between now and September. But after that, it remains very unclear, he says. In comments that appear to support the current gradual easing of restrictions, Professor Ferguson said, I suspect, though, under any scenario, that levels of transmission and numbers of cases will remain relatively flat between now and September, short of very big policy changes or behaviour changes in the community. The real uncertainty, then, is if there are larger policy changes in September, of course we move into a time of year when respiratory viruses tend to transmit slightly better. What will happen then? And that remains very unclear. No, it's very clear. What will happen then is they're going to overdrive in diagnosis of symptoms as being COVID-19, Second wave will go straight into lockdown, draconian measures, back where you were, but even more. Very bloody clear. The article continues. In the same session, he said that full lockdown and reduced transmission of COVID-19. He said, if we had done a better job or did do a better job of reducing transmission in closed institutions like hospitals and care homes, we would have a little bit more room, wiggle room, as it were. The infections in care homes and hospitals spilled back into the community, more commonly from the people who work in those institutions. 
even though hospitals are empty or have been over the past few months. And I talk about what's been the real story care homes in this virus context in 72. The article continues. Meanwhile, Professor Matt Keeling from Warwick University who advises two SAGE subcommittees, said the modelling community had dropped the ball when it came to understanding the impact on care homes and hospitals. The government's new track and trace programme will not on its own solve the crisis, Professor Ferguson believes. It's not a panacea, panacea, he said, which is a solution or remedy for all diseases or difficulties. It's not a panacea, he said, predicting that the scheme would reduce the R value by 0.25 at the most. It depends on not just what proportion of people show symptoms, but then what proportion of people can actually identify contacts or portion contacts identified, and then how quickly they're identified. He said 0.25, that's an interesting number because the fatality rate, according to the CDC, is not 3.4% as the Bill Gates-owned World Health Organization claimed earlier in the year, but actually 0.26%. And in episode 73, I talk about a story where Professor Carl Hennigan claims data shows infection rates halved after the government launched a public information campaign on March 16th, urging people to wash their hands, etc. Social distance. One week before lockdown, Hennigan argues Britain's crisis peaked before the lockdown and claims the fatality rate could be as low as 0.1%. I talk about that in episode 73. And I think I... If I remember rightly, there's only, I think I talk about the 0.26% in the last episode, I'm sure I do. So the killer question is, of course, if lockdown was the method to beat the virus, why then did Sweden and Japan, given how close that is to China, cope so much better without a lockdown than Britain and America? Answer, there is no virus, as I've been saying for the last few months, early April onwards. And it's all a mathematical, administrative, propaganda exercise. You don't need a real virus to hoax a global pandemic. All you need is control over the figures and the government media reporting of those figures, which I've examined in the previous episode and episode 69. And the mass of the people believing what they're told without question, which has demonstrably happened over the last few months or so, and you've got yourself a custom-made pandemic. People ask... Why were they hoax a pandemic? Well, there's two answers to that. First of all, I've looked at what the cult stand to gain from the pandemic hoax in episode 67 and in subsequent episodes with certain stories. I've looked at other benefits to their agenda, not least this episode. And secondly, if there's no real virus, then you've got control over the situation. You can dictate through this pyramid structure I mentioned earlier, the testing methods, which has obvious implications for the figures, You can dictate how these figures are recorded and reported. You can dictate when there is an alleged surge or when a country is past the curve, as they say. You can create a second wave and even when it happens or is alleged to happen, you've got total control. I've taken apart the virus hoax over the last few months in pay-per-view and on the new pay-per-view website, pay-per-view.uk, which is being updated very soon. There's a playlist of each episode relevant to the virus hoax. So there's no doubt when you look at the evidence that it's a virus hoax and that suits the cult more than anything because it gives them total control. That's their very mindset and mentality. And that's what they want over the rest of humanity. Total control. But they'll only get it if we keep giving it to them. 
we take the power back which we have, not them. Their power is the power we give to them. We take it back. It's game over for them and their agenda. And the final subject this week is Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson. This is in The Guardian. Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson has to get a grip and restore public confidence. The last two months, Keir Starmer has been cautious about criticising the government's coronavirus response. He has preferred to be forensic rather than furious, accepting that ministers have a difficult job, but it appears that his patience has finally run out. The calamitous events of the past week, from the Dominic Cummings affair to the mixed messages over the easing of the lockdown, has changed the mood of the new Labour leader. He has a tougher message now. I'm putting the Prime Minister on notice that he has got to get a grip and restore public confidence in the government's handling of the epidemic, he says. If we see a sharp rise in the R rate, the infection rate, or a swathe of local lockdowns, responsibility for that falls squarely at the door of number 10. We all know the public have made huge sacrifices. This mismanagement of the last few weeks is the responsibility of the government. Speaking to The Guardian via video link from Parliament, Starmer said it was essential to put down a marker that Johnson needs to sharpen up after a difficult week for the Prime Minister's administration. He stresses that Labour, along with the whole country, warns the government to get this right. But he says there's been a loss in public trust. This has been caused in part by Cummings' breach of the lockdown and Johnson's decision to stand behind his senior aide without reprimand, which Starmer says has been damaging. Add to that the mixed messaging over the lifting of the restrictions, a slow start to the contact tracing system and problems with daily testing figures. Big problems with testing figures, but not in the way meant in this quote. And you have what Starmer described as an exit without a strategy. My worry is that after a week or more of mismanagement, I'm deeply concerned the government has made a difficult situation ten times worse. There is a growing concern the government is now winging it. He said, at precisely the time when there should have been maximum trust in the government, confidence has collapsed. The article continues. A major survey in the last week bears out that statement, showing trust in the government's handling of the crisis has dropped and the gap in the polls between Labour and the Tories is narrowed, albeit four years out from another election. In terms of what has caused that shift, Starmer is clear. It's the Cummings factor, of course, the sense of one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. But it is also the mismanagement and the lifting of restrictions. An example of that would be the decision on Saturday to change the position for those that were shielding without any mention of that in a press conference or without any preparation for it. The Labour leader was sceptical about the way Johnson announced his easing of the lockdown measures in the week of the Cummings crisis when police said the aid may have breached the rules and dozens of Tory MPs agitated for his removal. They obviously took a decision to try and deflect attention away from the Cummings affair. There are questions that the government needs to answer about the precise timing of the measures it put in place, he says. Through the Cummings controversy, Starmer has taken a measured approach, saying he would have given him the sat by stopping just short of demanding that Johnson forces his advisor out. But given Labour clearly believes the aid broke the rules in a way that has undermined public trust in the lockdown, why not simply call for him to go? Starmer's answer is in line with the strategy of heaping responsibility onto the Prime Minister himself. It's blindingly obvious to me that the Prime Minister is just too weak to sack him, he says. I've laid out what I would have done as Prime Minister because of the impact on public trust and confidence. That's the most troubling aspect of the whole Cummings affair. We've all seen that loss of trust and confidence at precisely the wrong moment. If you would said which is the week the government needed maximum trust and confidence, the answer is the week in which you strike easing restrictions. That's where you need maximum trust and confidence. That's the thing the government has burnt in the last few weeks. Having won his job as Labour leader just two weeks into the lockdown, Starmer made a deliberate choice that he would try to be as constructive as possible toward the government. Some within his own party have wished for a less softly, softly approach and more tub-thumping anti-government rhetoric. But his calculation has been that the country wants cooperation rather than criticism for its own sake during such a serious national crisis. Starmer still believes that that was the right strategy all along, even if it is not eliciting much cooperation from the government in return beyond an update meeting and a few phone calls. On the issue of school, Starmer says he wrote to the Prime Minister two weeks ago in a private and confidential letter offering to help try and move this forward in a way that would ensure consensus and confidence, and I haven't even had a reply. 
A toughening of his position has been inevitable amid growing concerns among scientists, public health experts and others about Johnson's handling of events in the survey showing support for the government's actions and increasingly being called into question. Now he is planning to ask for more meetings in person with Johnson, Sir Mike Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary and Professor Chris Woody, the Chief Medical Officer. He still will not say, however, exactly what he would have done differently in terms of the timing of lifting the lockdown or criticise the decision to reopen schools and shops at this point in the epidemic. Part of the reason for this is that Labour does not have access to all the scientific advice the government has received. The important thing is that the government is transparent about taking the decisions it has. That's why we have constantly called on Number 10 to publish the scientific advice that, that we can see the basis on which it is taking decisions, he says. In light of that, he says, it is a backward step that Number 10 is coming back press conferences to weekdays only rather than daily. But Starmer also insists he wants to look to the future instead of past choices, suggesting it would be wrong at this stage to say the government has moved too fast on reopening society. The problem is that the government has now done that and there's no point putting the genie back in the bottle, he says. The question is how do we go forward now? It requires confidence building by the government, much more straightforward messaging. The coronavirus epidemic has been all-consuming for his first eight weeks in the job, but there are still tricky party issues to resolve that will also require his attention. The first is an Equalities and Human Rights Commission investigation into anti-Semitism within Labour, which former party leader Jeremy Corbyn suggested on Tuesday would be a product of the part of the government machine casting doubt on its impartiality. Starmer made clear he disagreed with this analysis, saying, I fully respect the independence of the EHRC. I was a champion of the EHRC. HRC being set up, I've been clear that under my leadership we will cooperate fully with the Commission and implement all the recommendations it put forward. The Labour leader will also have to deal with the continuing fallout of a leaked internal report into anti-Semitism, which angered those on the left of the party as it suggested some officials were working against Corbyn from within. Others were furious at the data breach caused by the leak. Starmer said he was determined that the independent inquiry he has ordered will report swiftly and won't be kicked into the long grass. People will see it is independent and I have no interest in anything that is not independent, he says. Speaking from a big empty boardroom in the opposition leaders' parliamentary offices, with only a handful of Labour staff in the building and dozens of empty desks, Starmer has returned to vote in person in the House of Commons after weeks of lockdown in his North London constituency. It was a challenge running the end of a leadership campaign and then taking on such a big job that required setting up new teams remotely during a pandemic, he says, but there has been a silver lining in terms of his family. I obviously started off running around the country trying to see as many people as possible and ended up doing an acceptance speech on my own in my living room, he says. Like everyone else, I'd love to get back to the stage where we will see each other physically. It's had its challenges, but seeing more of my children has been one of the great advantages. Well, Keir Starmer is an absolute frontman for the cult. This doesn't mean he knows about the cult, but he's a willing frontman for Israel and elite Zionism. I see Starmer as another Tony Blair. He doesn't care about the handling of the pandemic. He's just saying whatever suits. He'll do and say whatever suits, just like Blair did. He'll be a frontman for the elite Zionist hierarchy, just as Blair was. The Johnson government did screw up the handling of the pandemic, but not in the way Starmer talks about. Their biggest mistake was to rely on the alleged science of Professor Neil Ferguson and his team at Imperial College London, which I talk about in episode 72 and the connection to Bill Gates. The attacks on the Corbyn Labour Party for anti-Semitism are placed in their true context in episodes 10 and 28 in a way you will never hear in the mainstream media. The attacks were against a party at that time still willing to criticise Israel and highlight its grotesque injustices against the and genocide of the Palestinian people. Israel's actions go much deeper than merely genocide of Palestinians, but it needs pointing out all the same. The attacks were aimed at forcing the party into acquiescence with the elite Zionist organisations, targeting the party and adopting a new ludicrous definition of anti-Semitism, which, as I explain in episode 28, 
is aimed at targeting criticism of Israel and basically making that a definition of anti-Semitism. The Labour Party did eventually cave and adopted the definition. All major political parties in Britain now have adopted the definition. The best thing the government could have done over this alleged pandemic is to get independent experts to advise them and to look at the science. If they'd done that, as opposed to a group of advisors and experts connected to Bill Gates. See, the reason public trust and confidence for the government has dropped is because the public have been told a certain version of what this pandemic is. Real scientists who don't get on the media, qualified people, real experts, will tell a very different, in fact have been telling a very different story. People like Dr. Andrew Kaufman and Dr. Vernon Coleman have been looking at this with provable fact, telling a very different story. Kaufman, by the way, spelled K-A-U-F-M-A-N, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And I recommend looking at both of their work on the virus, so-called, and the pandemic alleged. Because had doctors like that been advising the Johnson government, there would be a lot more trust in the government because people would not be so lacking trust in the government's ability to get it right because they would realise there's not much to get right. Because the Johnson government has been advised and we've been told that this is massive pandemic, and of course the stakes are high from the start. If the stakes were lower, much lower, which they should be, as I've said over the last few months, then it would be easier for them to get it right in the eyes of the public. And people will say, but Andrew Kaufman's American, so I'm just using him as an example, someone like that, someone with that level of qualification and knowledge of virology and microbiology, etc. Real experts would have advised the government in a very different way. Thus, the public would view the situation very differently and have more trust in the government. But Bill Gates is running the scam globally. And and as I point out in episode 72, the advisors for the British government are connected to Bill Gates. And I explain what those connections are in that episode. But the media as well that writes articles like this and writes about the Johnson government's handling of the pandemic also has a role to play because if they'd researched the situation beyond mainstream experts and actually gave the public a chance to hear an alternative perspective from experts like Kaufman and Coleman, then again, that would have inspired more trust in government and it would have inspired more trust in people that actually the situation is not as bad as we're told. In fact, as I've said, well, since what, early April? I don't think there's anything to worry about, but even accepting there is, it would be very much less fear if that happened. If this alleged pandemic has proved anything, it's the actually doing your own research and finding out the truth for yourself, rather than taking it from someone, some appointed expert or government or media or whatever, is the answer. And very important as well, as we've seen, because if people did that and the media did that and society did that in general, then we'd be looking at a very different situation now. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.